right, take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. I have uh, another prayer request to add to your list. If you would pray for family in my church, the Jansen family, Richie family, um, they are uh, almost like a second family of ours, and we've done several Christmases and Thanksgiving at their house, being so far away from our family. And they have a daughter um, who is our age. She's about 40 years old, and uh, she's got a couple weeks left. She's been fighting cancer for, for years now. She has the same kind of cancer that took Steve Jobs, uh, and uh, she's had four good years, uh, praise the Lord, since she got diagnosed, but it's coming to an end. And so if you'll pray for that family, I'd really appreciate it um, over the next couple weeks, if you think of it. First Timothy chapter 6, really enjoyed the Sunday school lesson this morning uh, on the life of Timothy. I had no idea Brother Smith, is, is he here tonight? He's not, I don't blame him, um, but I'd I had no idea that he is such a gifted teacher, and I learned more than one thing this morning about Timothy that I didn't know. Um, and then I got to enjoy listening to Kevin preach this morning. Um, you know, we had Kevin up in September uh, preaching for us at Bible Baptist and enjoyed our time there a lot. I was thinking now that he's had me preach for or I've had him preach for him, he needs to have me preach for him down in South Africa. That would be amazing. Um, uh I was I was thinking, me and me and Kevin are really similar people, you know. If if I was good looking and in much better shape and about twice as intelligent and a much better speaker, we'd basically be the same guy. I mean, it, it's awesome. So um, I was praying about what I was going to preach tonight. My mind kept going to to this passage uh, in First Timothy chapter six. I'm not going to tell you I think that God spoke to me and, and told me to preach on this tonight. I really hate it when people, you know, assume words on God that are not in the scripture. But I do, I did feel led to preach in this message tonight, even though it's a different kind of subject for a guest preacher to speak on. You see, most of 1 Timothy chapter 6 is about our attitude towards money, our attitude towards money. Now, I don't like to talk about money. Most people don't like to talk about money. We've all heard people say that all preachers ever want to talk about is giving. Um, my wife, or maybe it was my mother-in-law, showed me a, a meme from Facebook of uh, Joel Osteen uh, that was recent, like the last day or so, and there was, the capture said, caption said, Joel, Joel Osteen's face, and it said, when y'all going to get those checks? You know, And that is about what most people think of preachers. They just think that we are just after your money, okay? All we ever want to talk about is money, and because of that stereotype, I don't like to talk about money. I don't like to talk about giving, and I think most preachers are probably the same way. We probably don't preach on it enough, Um, but the truth is you cannot preach the Bible. You can't preach the whole counsel of God without talking about money quite a bit because the Bible has a lot to say about this subject of money, and this particular passage talks about money probably as much as any other passage in the scripture. So we're not going to read the whole chapter tonight. We're just going to read uh, verses 1 to 10, and then we're going to skip to verse 17 and read verses 17 to 19. So let's look here, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6, starting in verse 1. It says, Let as many servants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor, that the name of God and his doctrine be not blasphemed. 
And they that have believing masters, let them not despise them because they are brethren, but rather do them service because they are faithful and beloved, partakers of the benefit these things teach and exhort. If any man teach otherwise and consent not to wholesome words, even to the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which is according to godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, but doting about questions and strifes of words, wherefore cometh envy, strife, railings, evil surmisings, perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness, from such withdraw thyself. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it's certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and raiment, let us be therewith content. But they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some have coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Skip down to, to verse 17, we'll read verses 17 and 19 here. It says, Charge them that are rich in this world, that they be not high-minded, nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God, who giveth us richly all things to enjoy, that they, that they do good, and that they be rich in good works, ready to distribute, willing to communicate, laying up in store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come, that they may lay hold on eternal life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray you'll help us as we think about this passage of Scripture, as we think about our own attitudes as a as believers, as church members towards money, I pray that you'll help us to ask ourselves honestly, what does the Bible have to say about this? Examine our hearts to see if we are guilty of some of the things you uh, point out in this passage, and then Lord, make whatever corrections that we need to. Lord, help us to live for eternity. Help us to lay up treasure in heaven and to live that way every day. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. I'm going to give you a 10-point message tonight. I know that's kind of scary. Um, I promise it won't be super long. I'm just going to go and lay out 10 different principles from these verses on money and giving and that sort of thing. And um, I, I don't think it's going to take a, a super long time. I'm just going to go through them one at a time. So the first point of my 10 points is this. As I was reading this passage, the thought came to my mind, that the Bible really speaks to real life. The Bible speaks to real life. I believe that God's word is important and that it was given for us and that we can learn from it how God wants us to live. And as I've studied and preached the Bible, I've come to believe more and more that the Bible cuts us where we are. The Bible cuts us where we live. You know, it's not giving us advice for some make-believe, pie-in-the-sky, super spiritual existence that none of us have. It's not a, a bunch of platitudes for the sweet by-and-by. It's real and raw truth for the messy now and now. And in this passage, it talks about attitudes toward money. Now look, every one of us has to deal with money every day. The passage talks about employees and employers. It calls them um, masters uh, and being under the yoke, but that's what the modern equivalent of that would be. Employers and employees. Most of us either have a boss or we are a boss and have employees. It talks about our relationship 
the relationship between a Christian employee and his boss. It's a very real thing. It talks about pitfalls that in, are in every one of our hearts. Um, how every one of us imagine constantly that our life would be better and that we would be happy if we just had more money or more of the things that money can buy. And the truth is that here in this chapter, uh, the truths that we see here in this chapter are just as much for a Christian living in 2021, so weird saying that, as it is for a Christian that was living in like AD 60 or whenever this was written. It's just as much for us here in Dalton, Georgia, as it was for them living in Ephesus. You have a real life. You have real relationship problems. I want to tell you, the Bible speaks to that. You know, we're dealing with all kinds of politics in this world. The Bible speaks to that. Uh, Everything, whether it's work, debt, authority, submission, sickness, health, worship, friendship, family, music, you're not going to find a better source of truth than God's Word. Um, now, in order to say that, we've got to understand a couple things. First, I think we have to understand, to really get what we need to out of the Scripture, we have to understand that mankind's problems are universal. We, we have cultural differences. People that live in a township in South Africa have a whole different set of problems that people that live in Dalton, Georgia, right? This is my first time ever wearing one of these things, so hopefully I don't say another thing about it again, all right? Um, uh, we, have, we have, you know, cultural differences. We have different struggles, but there are basic struggles that all of us face, no matter what year it is, no matter where we live, um, no matter our social standing. That's something we got to understand. Second thing we have to understand is that the people in Bible, the people in Bible times were not a bunch of knuckle-dragging Neanderthals, okay? Uh, They weren't illiterate idiots. Um, They they lived very complicated uh, lives, and they were intelligent people, just like we are living in complicated lives, and we're intelligent people. I was reading an archaeology magazine a couple weeks ago, and it was about Pompeii, the city in ancient Rome that got buried uh, almost like that with lava. And so it was completely, uh, completely preserved. And they're, they're still digging Pompeii. And they found recently, they found an intact, open-air fried chicken restaurant. I promise you this, okay? You can look it up. They found a fried chicken restaurant. It's like a 100, 80-100 version of a food truck. And they literally had a chicken logo painted on this little fried chicken restaurant, okay? And I, I thought that, and I saw that, you know, people think the, that the life back then was so different than it is right now, but there are a lot of similarities. And their lives were very, very complicated and much more sophisticated than we think they were. Um, third, I think it's important that we understand that the Bible is God-breathed, and the God that spoke out this perfect book understands uh, the needs of man more than any man that's living today does. And so the Bible speaks to real life. That's point number one. I promise I'll go faster as we go to the more points, okay? Before I give the second point, I want to talk uh, about the context of this chapter for a second. Paul is giving Timothy instruction, and it's instruction about 
the church in Ephesus. Problems are coming up in the church of Ephesus. Timothy is pastoring there. Uh, Paul is giving him instructions. It's an important letter, all kinds of important stuff about who to pick as pastors and deacons and the duties of, uh, of pastors and all kinds of important stuff in church, false teachers, that sort of stuff. And we get to this last chapter and Paul wants to wrap it up. And you'd think that the last chapter would at least be of equal importance to the other chapters. And the subject matter would be similar to the other chapters. Okay, He was going to talk about something that was important to the church. Well, he does. What does he talk about? Does he talk about spiritual gifts or counseling or, or uh, music or whatever? No. He, ta- he spends the, most of this last chapter talking about the church's attitude towards money. And he talks about, in the first couple verses, how poorer church member should think about the wealthy church member. And it talks about how the wealthy church member should think about their money and the poorer church member. Which brings me to my second point, okay? The second point is this. Your attitude about work and class and money has the potential to destroy your church. Your attitude about work, class, and money has the potential to destroy your church. There's a reason why Paul put this here, okay? Paul wasn't just like, okay, this is important, this is important, this is important, and I need a filler for a last chapter. Let's stack some stuff here on about money, okay? In Paul's mind, this was super important. It was a pressing problem. You know, Ephesus had some poor people in it that worked hard and they didn't make very much. And Ephesus had some wealthy people in it that probably uh, thought all day about padding their savings accounts and probably thought they were better than the poor folks. And when both of those people got saved and they got into the church, Paul wisely recognized here that there are some haves in this church and there are some have-nots in this church and the relationship and the struggles that they bring into it could destroy the church. Now listen, time has, times have not changed that much. There, there's a divide in our country right now like nothing I've ever seen. And in many ways, it's a divide between the haves and the have-nots. It's between the elites, they say, and uh, the working class. Um, between those that are educated and those that are not. And there is some very, very, very deep-seated resentment in our world today. And we are starting to see it explode all around us. And I think, you know, the stuff that we've seen in the last couple years, the riots and even uh, Donald Trump's presidency and all of the ugliness that's come out, so much of that is bubbling out of resentment that's been there for a long time and not been addressed. And if you think that ugliness cannot find its way into the church, I've got some oceanfront property in in Illinois that I can sell you, you know. Um, Look, Bible Baptist Church or Whitfield Baptist Church or any church could easily blow up into a battle between rich people or poor people. Or more likely, the rich people will go one place and start their rich people church, and the poor people will go over here and start their poor people church. And uh, they won't even cross paths anymore. Your attitude about this stuff matters a lot. And it doesn't just matter for you personally, although we'll get to that. It matters for the health of the church. With that in mind, look at verse 1. It says, 
Uh, Let as many servants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor, that the name of God and his doctrine be not blasphemed. Point number three is this, okay? Um, You should assume that people deserve what they make. You should assume people deserve what they make. That's what verse one, I think, is verse one is talking about. Anytime in the New Testament you see the word honor or worthy of honor, you can usually assume that it's talking about money or payment, not about, you know, honoring somebody, uh, like, you know, praising somebody, okay? Um, Usually that word is talking about money or payment. Like when the Bible talks about uh, uh, the pastor that rules well being worthy of double honor, I think that's talking about their payment. Brother Wayne, is that what you can tell me later if that's what you wanted me to say, okay? Uh, he didn't tell me to say that. Um, the, the word is dima. The Greek word is dima. It's the word for a price of a thing, the word for what somebody is worth, and very often it's used in terms of payment. So you can picture this with me. I mean, I'm sure you've seen this sitting in your office, sitting at the factory, whatever, heard conversations like, why does my boss make so much money? All he does is sit in that office. All he does is play golf, right? And here we are, we're toiling away. Did you see his house? Did you see that new car that he's driving? But the Bible says that Christian employees... Christians are not supposed to be playing that game. We are to count them worthy of all honor. That means whatever they've got, we're to count them worthy of it. Okay? Uh, Here's a challenge for you. Next time you feel that, and it's envy, by the way. That's what that is. Next time you feel that in your heart, next time you see someone's nice car, or you see someone's nice house, I want you to say this, even if you have to say it out loud, say it, they probably deserve that, or say it this way, good for them, okay, and try to mean it, but you don't get to be a revolutionary as a Christian, you don't get to be a communist in your heart, okay, the call to follow Christ is the call to crucify envy and jealousy and covetousness, okay. Number four, you should not expect special privileges from your Christian boss. Look at verse two. It says, and they that have believing masters, let them not despise them because they are brethren, but rather do them service because they are faithful and beloved, partakers of the benefit these things teach and exhort. Here's the scenario. I work for Bob. Bob just got saved. Now Bob is a church member. Now Bob is a brother in Christ. So I can go to Bob and I can be like, hey, Bob, because you're my brother in Christ, how about a little bit extra time off? How about lighten a load in the office? Hey, can I call you brother Bob at work? Okay, all right. Can you give me an extra day off so I can go to that church activity? And the Bible makes it plain here. You can't do that. You might be equals before the Lord, but he's still your boss. You still have to treat him like your boss. There's more than one passage in the New Testament with the same scenario that plays out. All right, number five. Look at verse six. Moving past this first couple of verses. Verse six. Christians should work on developing contentment. It says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. 
For we brought nothing into this world, and it's certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and raiment, let us be therewith content. Contentment. Someone said, contentment isn't having what you want, it's wanting what you have. Contentment is is being able to say, God is good and I have enough. Everything about our culture is geared towards destroying contentment. You know, every commercial that comes on television is like a little missile shot at your contentment. The average American family has something like $13,000 in credit card debt, has over $100,000 in total debt. You know what that says? It says a lot of things, but it says we don't have contentment because so much of that is for things that we don't need. We, we're trying to keep up with the Joneses. We're trying to keep moving, or at least appearing like we're moving up and to the right. I read a book sometime this year uh, about a guy who I don't think is a Christian. His name's Derek Siver. Uh, he started a website selling albums uh, direct to consumers on the internet a couple, maybe 10, 10 15, 20 years ago. And uh, very quickly was able to sell that website for over $20 million. And, uh, you know, got to call himself a CEO and all that. And after a couple years of hanging out with a rich crowd and, uh, you know, living that rat race, he ended up selling everything that he had, almost all that money uh, he gave away. Uh, he set it up so a little bit so he had a little bit uh, so he, you know, wouldn't go into bankruptcy or anything and moved back into the apartment he was living in before he hit it big. And he said something in this book, again, this guy's not a Christian, but I thought it was pretty profound. He said, I realize that I have something that my friends could never afford. I have enough. The truth is this, most of you Christians have enough. You just don't realize it. I know I do. I fall victim all the time to that, I got to get more bug, right? I got to get better. You probably do too. As Christians, whether we are rich or poor, we should have the attitude of contentment. Do people see you as another person? Listen, do you have a testimony for this? Do people see you as another person in the rat race? Do your neighbors see you as somebody that's just living for the next upgrade like everybody else? Or is there something different about the way that you're living your life? Is your contentment obvious? Number six, if you live to make money, it's going to lead you into all kinds of other sins. Verses 9 and 10 are well-known verses. It says, but they that are rich will fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil which while some coveted after they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Now, these verses are a little confusing. They are not teaching that the love of money is the root of every sin. Okay, that's pretty obvious. I don't think, I think we all know Lucifer wasn't thinking about the Benjamins when he rebelled against God in heaven, right? Uh, When people sexually abuse children, money has nothing to do with that, okay? money's not a motivating part of that sin. What it is teaching us is that if you love money, 
loving money is going to lead you into all evil. It's going to lead you into all kinds of other sins. You could read it, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Now, a lot of people start off with what seems, you know, innocent. It's just part of our culture. They, they, they start off with, well, I just need to make more money. I need to get more money. I need to get a bigger bank account. But before long, that desire to have more, that desire to upgrade their life has them cheating on their wife, has them stealing from people, has them losing all interest in church. I know many people that have started out with just a love of money, just wanting to have more, and they've ruined their life with all kinds of other sins. That's what this passage is teaching. If you don't get your attitude towards more under control, it's going to pull you into all kinds of other sin and ruin your life. Got to hurry. Number seven. If you have money, don't think that it makes you better than others. Look at verse 17. It says, charge them that are rich in this world that they be not high-minded. We'll come back to that verse in a second. They be not high-minded. What does that mean? That means your Lexus does not make you more of a man than my Ford. I don't have a Ford, by the way, okay? Your Rolex doesn't make you better than my Timex, okay? If God has blessed you with more, that's not a bad thing, okay? God blessed Abraham with more. God blessed Job with more. God blessed David and Solomon with more. Having does not make it, having things is not bad, okay? You have to understand it also doesn't make you better than people that don't have those things. And if you're too good because of, what salary you make or, or because of the kind of clothes that you wear, the kind of people that you work with, if you're too good to come to a work day with a bunch of brothers that aren't as rich as you are, you're high-minded. If you're too good to put your arm around a brother or sister from the other side of the tracks and pray with them, you're high-minded. And society says a, a man is defined by the kind of car that he drives. A man is defined by the kind of clothes that he wears, where he goes on vacation, how much money is in his bank account. But the Bible teaches that our worth as Christians is not in our bank account. Our worth is wrapped up in Jesus Christ. And every person here, whether you make $10,000 a year or $200,000 a year, you are a person that Christ died for. And that is, that makes you invaluable. Number eight, don't trust in money. If you have money, don't trust in it. Again, verse 17, charge them that are rich in this world that they be not high-minded, nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God which giveth us richly all things to enjoy. I know people, I'm sure you know people, that can never have enough zeros in their bank account. In their mind, money is their insurance against all the bad stuff that could ever happen to them. Uh, they, they might not be hoarding things, they're hoarding dollars. And I know more than one person, personally, that's a millionaire, that you know has 
hundreds of thousands of dollars in the bank, that every time you find yourself at a restaurant with them, they excuse themselves to go to the bathroom when the check comes. You know people like that? Okay. Uh, God can, here's the truth about money. It doesn't matter how much money. You could be Bill Gates or Jeff Bezos, okay? It doesn't matter how much money you have. God could, on your money, and it could be gone in an instant. In an instant. You know, we are one natural disaster or one world war away from losing all of it at any moment. So don't trust in your money. Trust in the Lord. Of course, I'm not saying don't have a savings account. You know, the Proverbs talks about saving. You know, uh, that, that's, that's, a, that's, that's a good thing to have. But we should be trusting not in our savings account. We should be trusting in God's protection, in God's provision. Two more things and I'm done. Number nine, if you have money, use it to help. Use it to help. Verse 18. It says, they, that they do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to distribute, willing to communicate. That means if God has given you money, then God's given you the opportunity to help other people. How many of you have ever been in a bind before financially, having a hard time? You don't have to raise your hand. A couple of years ago, I was uh, going through a hard time. No one knew about it. I don't think I've even talked to Amanda about it. And somebody knocked on my door, doesn't even go to my church, handed me an envelope with a couple hundred dollars in it and said, God told me to give this to you. And he just ran off, right? Um, and uh, that sort of thing's happened to me more than once in my life where there was a need, I had a need, and God used somebody or a group of people and laid it on their heart, and God blessed me through those people. If you know somebody that's in need and you have the ability to help them, okay, pray about doing that. Do it. If you need somebody, ask Brother Wayne. I'm sure he knows people. Ask Brother Jason. You know, maybe there's a young man in, in church that's trying to go to Bible college or something and doesn't know how he's going to be able to get back to school for the next semester. God could use you to bless them. Maybe there's a, a young couple that's just got saved and they're trying to go to church and they need a new washing machine and they have no idea where it's going to come from. You have no idea how much of a blessing you could be. That's way better than a 35th gun for your gun cabinet, okay? Or upgrading your 2020 truck to a 2021. One more thing. Along this line, number 10, we should focus on building our heavenly bank account. Our heavenly bank account. That says the wrong thing on that screen. That is the wrong, that is not what I meant. Freudian slip or something. You changed it, didn't you, Cody? It's probably that other guy up there. Look at verse 19 again. Laying up in store for themselves. Can you just blank that out or something? That's just going to bother me. That's, there we go. Now you remember it more. Laying up for, in store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come, that they may lay hold on eternal life. 
okay? I think this is, this is written specifically to wealthy people, but I think this is the same if you're poor schmo or you're, you know, richy rich, doesn't matter. You should care a lot more about your heavenly bank account than the one you have at BB&T or wherever your, wherever your money is. Jesus said it this way in Matthew 6. He said, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt and where thieves do not break through nor steal. Listen, someday you're going to take your last breath here on this earth. You don't know when it's going to be. Not my friend Sarah that, that's, that's passing away. Uh, it's going to go, you know, barring a major miracle in the next couple weeks. I, I'm sure five years ago she never imagined she had five years left to live. You don't know when your last breath is going to be. And the Bible teaches you're going to stand before God someday. You're going to give an account. And you know what? I, I guarantee you, you're not going to get to heaven and think, I wish I had nicer golf clubs. You know, I wish I bought my clothes downtown instead of at Costco. I wish I made another $10,000 a year. You know what you're going to wish? You're going to wish you invested your time for the things of the Lord more wisely. You're going to wish you spent more time with your family. You're going to wish you spent more time at church, more time in missions, more time in evangelism, more time on others, and less on yourself. There's a song, I don't think it's in the hymn book, I was looking for it. By and by, when I look on his face. You ever heard that song before? By and by, when I look on his face, beautiful face, wonderful face. By and by, when I look on his face, I wish I had given him more. I, I hope uh, you read back over this chapter and examine your own attitudes towards money. Are you looking at other people and bitter that they have more than you do? All right? Or maybe you have money and you're hoarding it and not using it for the Lord. We have, the Bible speaks to this area of our life very clearly, and it's important. Not just for ourselves, it's important for our church, and uh, we better get a hold of it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you'll help us, Lord, to put these things into practice in our life. Lord, I don't know the financial makeup of anybody in this room besides myself, and I don't know um, how much money they make or what they don't have, but Lord, I know that you put this in the Word, and I know that it's important. And Father, I pray that you'll Help us to uh, just take these things and, and put them into practice in our life. Maybe there's somebody here that's uh, envious and jealous of others. I pray, Lord, that you help them to, to get over that, to, to get victory over that sin. Maybe there's people here that are stingy. Maybe they're trusting in money instead of trusting in the Lord. Whatever the thing is, help us all, Lord, to, to try to build up our bank account in heaven, to lay up treasures in heaven. Um, we ask this in Jesus' name.